of us, if we've read through the Old Testament, we've read through it canonically. We start in Genesis and then just go all the way to Malachi and that's it. Well, Genesis and Malachi are indeed the first and the last books uh, chronologically that are written. But if you're aware, the middle of all of that is all mixed up. There's all sorts of stuff like uh, you, you, when you finish the Chronicles, you see Ezra and Nehemiah, and then you see Esther and Job. Well, Job occurs during the time of Abraham. Esther occurs in the Persian exile, you know, 1,600 years apart. But if you're just reading straight through, you don't get this sense of it. It gets even more confusing when we come to the prophets, because the prophets are not delineated by time. They're delineated by length. You get the major prophets, meaning those who wrote big books, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and then you got the minor prophets, those who wrote smaller books, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, right, all of these. But they're not chronological. And so if you're just reading straight through them, you really, you, you just get so disjointed because you're back and forth all in different time periods in Israel's history. Have you ever read through the prophets and you just go like, I have no idea what's happening. That's usually why. So when I come to the time frame where the prophets are writing, I intersperse them chronologically. So while we're here in 2 Chronicles 20, and then we're also going to be in 2 Chronicles 24, one of the prophets occurs between those, four chapter, between those two chapters, and that's the prophet Joel. So we're going to start in 2 Chronicles 20, then we're going to go to Joel, and then we're going to come right back to 2 Chronicles 24, because that is the order in which it occurred. And my, my intention is for us to interact in how in time did the people of God experience information about the Holy Spirit. Okay, does that make sense? Um, so it will get a little disjointed, but trust me, <laughs> the, the timeline is what we're aiming at here, because I want us to appreciate um, that there's very definitive types of statements in certain time periods as we go forward, okay? Um, all right, so that's just laying that groundwork. That's why we're going to be in Second Chronicles 20, and then we're going to jump to Joel, and then we're going to come right back to Second Chronicles 24. So if you want to get those laid out, those are the three passages we'll be in. <clears throat> and I will say, as far as for the dating of a couple of the prophets, some people have disagreements over exactly when they occur, uh, I'll reference those when we come to them, like Joel, for instance. Um, people who are correct agree with me, as always. And then, <laughs> and then the crazy people have a different opinion. So uh, we're not going to teach the other opinion. All I'm going to say is, <laughs> all I'm going to say is that when I teach this class, I'm teaching it from my perspective. I believe Joel to be one of the earliest prophets rather than one of the latest prophets. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, the way he references the Holy Spirit and promises things. And things like that are part of that, but there's others. So anyway, you're in my class, so you're going to get my opinion on that. How's that? I'll just mention that not everyone agrees with that, <clears throat> especially those who are wrong. All right, Second Chronicles chapter 20. Second Chronicles 20. No, I'm not actually that prideful. I, uh, I just like to... Uh... I'm just always right. Yeah, well, I know. It's just I can't help it. Um, you know, everyone will agree with me when we're in heaven. No worries. All right, 2 Chronicles 20 is a remarkable passage, uh, one that actually sets aside um, natural perspectives for the promise of supernatural outcomes, right? So Jehoshaphat is still king, right? We've been talking about Jehoshaphat and him going with Ahab, and they were working on all sorts of stuff last week, right? Jehoshaphat is still king. Um, he's king of Judah in the south, and... He's going up against the Moabites and the Ammonites. Um, and um, these are the people to the east of Israel. Moab still being a beautiful place. I've actually driven through there. Uh, still a gorgeous place. The plains of Moab. Uh, Ammonites are from the area of the capital of Jordan named Ammon. Same place. Uh, all this stuff is still there. And the, the setting of this the setting of this chapter really lays down this expectation that Jehoshaphat had no hope of overcoming what he didn't even know existed yet. The, the enemy that was coming into him, uh, we, we kind of pick it up uh, in verse 1. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Muonites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat a great multitude. 
a great multitude is coming against you from Edom and from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazan Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Uh, and then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. And Judah assembled and, uh, to seek help from the Lord from all the cities of Judah. They came to seek the Lord. We're in Second Chronicles chapter 20. What's that? I was just going to write down a Passover. Oh, that's okay. Second Chronicles chapter 20. We're just picking up verse 5 right now. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before the people of Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, pestilence, famine, we will stand before the house and before you, for your name is in this house, and, uh, and cry out to you in your affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you, have, uh, whom you would not let Israel invade when they, became, when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Now, that is a remarkable prayer. I mean, just to, to appreciate that this is a public prayer from the mouth of a king, how, how humiliating if it, if it was ever to be that a king would, in his own might or power, actually uh, defend the people of God. This is a very humiliating prayer. Jehoshaphat is just saying, we are looking at this enemy. We don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. None of us know what to do. Now, if you go to any leadership seminar today, you would look at Jehoshaphat and go, Jehoshaphat, that's the dumbest thing ever. People lose confidence in you, and they will abandon you, and then you will for sure lose the battle. But this is how the scriptures continually place these things in the opposite of expectations. We see that it is only in our weakness that God imbues his strength to bring us through. It is not by us implying that we are the most powerful and God is here to you know, lend us a little bit of hand if we need some help. Right? That's not how the economy of heaven works. The economy of heaven works, and starting with holiness, strength, and righteousness dwell with God, not with us. And it is at the point of recognizing it doesn't exist with us that we actually join with God in what he is doing rather than telling him to come and join with us in what we are doing. You see those two completely different things. Jehoshaphat is looking at this and saying, we have no hope of carrying out the task that's set before us. We will see foreshadowing of this in the church. The church has a task that is well outsuited for her natural abilities. We are to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every man, woman, and child, but we don't have the ability to convince them to listen. We can't gift repentance or faith into someone's heart. We can only be faithful. And to us, it is frustrating at times, isn't it? Because what effect can we have? I mean, all we can do is be faithful, and we can't actually make somebody repent. We can't make them trust in the Lord. We can't do any of that. And yet, that is our primary directive. And so, what does God say about these things? So, Even Jesus addressed this with his disciples, didn't he? You're going into a city, and you're preaching the gospel, and they reject you. They're not rejecting you. Who are they rejecting? Me. That's what Jesus says. Don't, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Shake the dust off your feet. Go to the next city. Don't, don't take failure as though it is God not blessing you. Take it as telling you what way to turn. Right? Failure, and we talk about this often, we should. Failure for the Christian, as we will come to, is the same as for Jehoshaphat here. He had a responsibility to defend the people of the Lord. He had a responsibility to carry out the role of the king here. And his responsibility is not to trust in himself, but to look to God and to trust in him, no matter the outcome. He is facing 
a, a foe that is far beyond anything that he can muster. It doesn't matter how many people he goes and drums up support and how big of an army comes. The Edomites, the Ammonites, and the Moabites are far stronger than him. Remember, we're in a divided kingdom. He only has two and a half of the tribes. He doesn't have the 12 tribes. He's not in charge of that. The northern kingdom is off doing their own stupid stuff at this point. And so Jehoshaphat is just left to face this straight up. Look how desperate the moment becomes. Verse 13. Meanwhile, all of Judah stood before the Lord. Usually that just means the armies and the elders and the rulers. But the chronicler here points out that at their time of desperation, all of Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and all their children. Infants are there praying to the Lord. Their wives are there. Nobody's taking up arms. They're just praying to the Lord. It is at this moment in verse 14 that the Spirit of the Lord comes into the story. I find it fascinating that he chooses this moment of all moments because it's a very unusual one in Israel's history. Verse 14, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jeoel, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the house of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. So we have someone here who is a Levite and somebody who is actually a descendant of Asaph. If you're not familiar, that was, uh, that was a man who wrote several of the Psalms. Uh, back during the reign of David and the reign of Solomon. Uh, So he's a descendant of all of this. So along with his family comes not only the concept of priesthood, but now prophecy as also worship. Really interesting character. Um, Verse 15, and he said, and so this is the Spirit of the Lord speaking through him, right? Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Anything unusual about the battle they're anticipating now? What, what is the Spirit of the Lord asking them, to, not asking, instructing them to do? Don't fight. Nothing. Watch what I do. It's not that your strength is not enough. It's that it's not necessary. This is, this is one of those things that... Uh, is really going to be a central theme in the gospel's proclamation as we come to what the Holy Spirit is focused on in the New Testament. There, there, it, the, the parallel to the lack of our own righteousness bleeds out of everything the Holy Spirit does in the book of Acts. When he expresses out to these things, it is not in finding our own righteousness and then saying, well, we have some of the sin yet, so we'll repent of the sin, but we've got some good works in us still. No, it's that... Everything that we have to offer for the battle towards sin is worthless. Don't you know this? You try to set up your own boundaries. You try to set up your own rules. How quick are you to break those? Unless the Spirit of God is going to do this, unless the Spirit of God builds the house, those who plan, those who build, build it in vain, right? Unless it is the Lord who is doing these things, it is nothing but man's religion. And people are very quick to make a a false religion out of Christianity, Christianity is not here saying, if you just know some stuff about Jesus and then try really hard, you will succeed in beating sin. You can't do that. You can't. Sin is far more powerful than us. Far more powerful. But God is far more powerful and infinitely so than sin. And so getting these things in order is proper for Christians. It was proper for Jehoshaphat. He realized that he has a great horde coming to him, that he has no hope. Even if every single man, woman, and child donned on armor and had bows and had horses and cavalry, couldn't even hope to overcome what was just over the horizon. But God comes up to them and says, it's not you who's fighting this. Right, this time, God is interacting with the people of Israel as a, uh, as a picture of what he will do for all peoples in the world uh, that call upon him. But at this point, he is depicting for them 
your responsibility to this is not the fight. It's not to win it. It's not to have strength. It's not to gird up anything. It's not to do any of those things. No, just watch the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Now, this is unique, isn't it? Because before, we had instances that were similar, right? Jericho, the walls of Jericho is a really good example of it. But the very next months, they went to AI, they went to all sorts of places, and they were to pick up swords. And they were to go to battle. And some of those battles they lost. God here is doing very unique picturing for the leaders of Israel and for the people who actually call upon him for salvation to show them that the reality is not how much we can muster. The reality is if the Lord is saving us, it requires nothing of us because we don't have anything to offer. Imagine, for instance, if somebody comes up and offers, if somebody, very, very wealthy person comes up and offers, I always use the picture of a red Ferrari because I find them fun. If, if Warren Buffett comes into my office someday and just goes like, you know, Tim, I've been listening to you online. Yeah, right. Um, and and I, I want to just gift you a red Ferrari. And if I get into this mindset where I'm just like anything other than grateful, I just go like, let me, let me pay you back. Let me even up a bit. Um, here, here's $20. There, we're even. Thank you. What, what is that $20 in the face of $175,000 Testarossa? Nothing. Nothing. And to, to assume that it is, is actually an affront and almost an insult, if you will, to what it is. What God has done is infinitely far more than that. And us saying that the way we say thank you is just by doing good works misses the whole point. Even our good works aren't good enough for this. This is a holiness that is beyond our concept and beyond our ability. Here, Jehoshaphat is learning that this is not, and he is doing this properly, this is not a matter of finding enough swords so that God can use you. This is not a matter of finding enough recruits so that you can actually make sort of it'll work. God did the same thing with Gideon. When, when the Midianites were coming against them, we saw the Spirit of the Lord involved with this. This is what the Spirit of the Lord constantly doing. I'm the one that's going to bring life. I don't need you to do this. Right? The same thing with Gideon. Where, where God comes up to Gideon, he's like, you know what? You have way too many soldiers. If, if I send you in with all the soldiers that you have, you will miss that it is me who is doing this. And so it is actually a great mercy that the Spirit of the Lord comes and actually delivers them in certain instances and teaches them this reality that it is not by might, it is not by power, it is not by size of army, and then by extrapolation, Christians, it is not by righteousness, it is not by rules, it is not by accountability partners, only by my Spirit will the life that God brings actually come to call. Go out against them, the Lord will be with you. Keep your eyes on me. What's the response? Verse 18, Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. This is down to the smallest infant. Everyone is standing before the temple, worshiping the Lord for this. The Levites, the Kohathites, the Korites stood up to praise the Lord. Those are all the, um, the priests, the uh, song leaders, and everything in the, uh, in the temple the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. They rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now here we have the responsibility of the king to pass on what God had said. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire. And they went before the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. When they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come up against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. When they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. God made their ambushes accidentally go against each other. The people of Israel didn't fight at all. You can read the rest of that story at some point, but the teaching is overly clear. 
It is not great skill that the Lord needs from us. It is not great accomplishments or abilities. It is a faithful heart. This happens at some really important transition points in Israel's history. Because now we are moving from a focus on the kings to the focus on the prophets. The first of the written prophets occurs in the very next king's reign. And we are going to go to that. You can go ahead and start turning to Joel chapter 2. What Jehoshaphat is learning is that it is the word of the Lord and the actions of the Lord that are significant and important. It is not even what the king sets his mind to. He encourages all the people in his prayer to recognize our powerlessness before an enemy we cannot defeat, and instead to also recognize our inability to know what to do, but just to set our eyes on the Lord. He reminds all the people after the Spirit of the Lord came to the prophet and told them about these things, to just believe the Lord. He says we don't need to fight. Everyone, stand still. Don't pick up a sword. Don't pick up a shield. Listen to those who are singing to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord at all points and believe his prophets and you will find success. Friends, this is a perennial year after year, century after century, millennium after millennium teaching that exists amongst the people of God. We tend to mess up the idea of what faith is. We think faith is believing that God can do something or believing that God will do something when he hasn't talked about that. Right? If I just go like, I'm going to believe with all my heart that a red Ferrari is going to be in my lawn tomorrow. Faith has no power. It can't make that happen. You say, well, I'm going to believe that God will reward me for all these things. No. Faith is not believing that God will do something that you want if you believe enough. Faith is just believing God at his word. When he says something, that is it. When he speaks, that's it. This is exactly where Jehoshaphat lands up. He says to all of Israel, believe in the Lord, believe in the Lord, and believe his prophets. What's the role of the prophets? It's different than the kings. What's the role of the prophets? To say, this is what the Lord has said. Or to say in the old King James, thus says the Lord. What's the sign of a false prophet? Someone who says, thus says the Lord, when the Lord has not said such a thing. Right? TV is filled with people like this. Uh, Our radio waves are filled with people like this. The internet is filled with people like this. If we just believe, it will occur. I mean, how many times have you seen a televangelist go, give me some seed money, you know, give me $1,000 in faith and God will turn it into whatever the date is that day or whatever mathematical thing that they've done to fool people into giving them $1,000. They're stealing it. God doesn't reward you following false prophets. Don't expect that. He has not promised such a thing. Nowhere in scripture is a saying, give $1,000 to this guy and I'll turn it into 10000 Now, if you can find that in scripture, let me know. That's a surefire way to invest, but I promise you, it's not in there. That's not how that works. How it works is if you are faithful in little, God will make you faithful in much. Maybe we should spend our time learning what faithfulness is. Spend our time learning what these things actually are and how impossible it is for the natural man to actually just be faithful. And that in the, in the ultimate sense, we just fix our eyes on God and he makes us faithful. And it's a remarkable thing. I want you to see this in Joel chapter 2. The very next generation, a new king comes to the throne named Joash. We're going to come back to his story in Second Chronicles 24. But as I said, we're doing this chronologically. The prophet Joel prophesies in the first year of the reign of King Joash, According to my estimations, uh, some people have a different opinion on that. I don't. Uh, that's okay. I'm teaching this class. Joel uh, prophesies in the book of Joel at the beginning of the reign of King Joash, who's seven years old when he comes to the throne, by the way. Remarkable thing. And Joel starts off this time of the prophets with a remarkable picture of something that will take 800 years to come about. See if you recognize it. 
He goes through in chapter 2 of all of these things that have, uh, that will be coming along. Uh, the day of the Lord that's going to come in their time. They had a locust invasion during this time that uh, destroyed all their crops. That's a very, very rough thing in an agrarian society. 95% of people are farmers. When when locusts come in, they eat everything. And here in the uh, in the second chapter, he def- he defines all sorts of different types of um, all sorts of different types of locusts. This has happened in history multiple times in his in Israel's history. But it was also used as a picture of how the Assyrians are going to come in and take over everything in Judah and Jerusalem uh, and uh, and Israel. Is that the Assyrians are going to come down? There's nothing you can do to stop it, just like a locust. You can't stop a locust, can you? Right? Have any of you, like, uh, it's like me growing a garden uh, and trying to keep deer away. Doesn't matter. What I do, they are going to be in there when I wake up and have coffee in the morning. I look out my window, there they are eating all my lettuce. There's nothing I can do. I can build, uh, you know, electric fences, uh, hire a sniper. Doesn't matter. They're just in there eating lettuce, however it goes. And the same feeling of, of, um, of exposure happens when locusts infest an agrarian society, right? And so Joel and the word of the Lord through Joel uses this picture that they're very familiar with of locusts coming in and destroying everything in the land and all the hope for the future and says the way that that is is the way the Assyrians are going to come in and take everything. They're going to take everybody. They're going to take everything. They're going to destroy the houses. They're going to destroy the city walls. They're going to carry you away, and your hope will vanish with this. The story of Joel is absolutely destructive. And here in the middle of all of that, while he is describing all of these things, he is saying to the people that they have a responsibility to return to the Lord. Because by the end of all of this, they had abandoned uh, the Lord. This happens, this kind of cycle happens all throughout Israel's history. Um, and the expressions here that we find at the end of chapter 2, um, in verse 28 through the end of the chapter, verse 32, the expressions here talk about the reality of how it is that God will bless those who return to him regardless of the current circumstances. And this is a double-pronged thing because it meant something to the people in Joel's day, but it certainly, in retrospect, means something far greater for all the people who call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And no, that's not an interpretational opinion. That is stated here in the text, and it is also quoted in the New Testament. And I'll give you a... um, I'll give, I'll give anyone a, uh, a gold star for the day if you can tell me where it's quoted in the New Testament after we read this. Joel chapter 2, verse 28. It will come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, meaning without distinction with regards to what station they are, who they are, sons, old men, young men, male and female, servants, free, slave, doesn't matter, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. Now, here is a promise, straight up. And he says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, he takes this very common theme throughout the prophets of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord can refer to a, a, a singular judgment on a people at a specific moment, and it also, by extension, refers to the ultimate day of the Lord at the end of time. Right? That double meaning happens all through the prophets, all the time. So he's talking to the people that uh, Joel is speaking to, but he is also referencing the reality that the end of the world looks very much like how God who judges nations and cities, it looks just the same because it's the same God having the same standard and the same judgment. The sun shall be turned to darkness. Look how, look how massive the day of the Lord is with this description. The moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Now, obviously, we're dealing with some historical stuff that's going on here, but we are dealing with things on cosmic levels that go way outside the timeline of the early 800s BC. Let's go with step one. Where is this quoted in the New Testament and applied directly? Anyone know? It sounds like it belongs in Revelation, doesn't it? It's not. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. The day that the Holy Spirit came on every man, woman, and child that belonged to him. Peter quotes this passage and says, this is that which the prophet Joel prophesied. He quotes it in Acts chapter 2. I want you to see it. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Didn't I say that by the time you come to the day of Pentecost, after you go through the Old Testament, all of a sudden it's going to mean so much more. We're going to see the expansive view of God's salvation no matter what's going on. It's a part of Paul's, or excuse me, of Peter's introduction. <laughs> it's kind of a remarkable thing uh, because he doesn't just reference it a little bit. Oh, didn't you know Joel talked about that? No, it's like a third of his sermon. Watch what Paul, uh, Paul, Paul's not saved yet. Peter, Acts chapter 2. What's happened is the Holy Spirit has come upon all who are in the upper room. Remember, the promise was that the gospel was going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the pattern in the book of Acts, both of the gospel and of the Holy Spirit. We'll see that. Right now, we're just in Jerusalem, right? The very beginning. So in Jerusalem, there is gathered all people from all sorts of different places. You see the list there uh, from uh, from uh, verse 8 through verse 11. Look at that list of all the Jews for, from different places. People who are from Parthia, Mede, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the lower parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors even from Rome, Italy. Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, we all hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Here, the first miracle ever worked in the church age was speaking in tongues. They all heard them in their own tongues. Whatever land they were from, their primary heart language, that thing you think in, that's what they heard them. That's not a natural ability, okay? Not even close. Speaking in tongues is one of the more accentuated gifts in the early apostolic era. It is not natural on any level whatsoever. You can't work your way up to it. You can't make yourself do it. You can't learn how to do it. I don't care how many people tell me they can teach me. You cannot learn these things. The Spirit of God did not sit there and have a, you know, a lesson with everyone in the upper room and go, by the way, this is how you speak in tongues. No, he just told them to go out and speak the gospel, and all of a sudden, everyone heard them in their own language. We're talking about people from the entire known world, everywhere, because they were there for Passover. All were amazed and perplexed, saying, what does this mean? And then others mocked them, saying, they're all drunk. Verse 14. The first sermon of the church age. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them and said, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you. Give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's too early for that. It's only the third hour of the day. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants, my female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon shall be turned to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so Peter interprets it for us. Very, very helpful. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Basically, you're all witnesses to this. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he quotes about death not being able to hold him. 
uh, skip forward a little bit. You can read the rest of this if you would like to. Verse 36, we'll pick it up. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, speaking of Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Gift. Not something earned. Not something wielded. Not something doled out at will. This promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Go back to Joel 2. That is what the Holy Spirit has in mind in the ultimate sense. You say, well, where, what about all these other things? You know, wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. All of these things are very part of the judgment of the Lord. Many of them happened at Jesus' crucifixion. And most people miss that part of the story, that there was massive earthquakes and the sun was darkened out and nobody could see anything. Darkness took over the land. I mean, it was a remarkable thing. Why? Because the Lord was judging sin and saving his people. He was doing both. When the Lord judges, the cosmic world responds. Right? So significantly and so much so, that it almost acted like accidental overflow of the effect of Jesus' death. Who remembers that in the book of Matthew, the moment that Jesus died and that huge earthquake happened, all sorts of tombs were open and people rose from the dead. Anyone remember that part of the story? Remarkable. It's a great Good Friday sermon, by the way, if you ever do it. It's only one verse. But it's one of these things where these people rose from the dead, and after Jesus was risen from the dead, they went into Jerusalem and um, presented themselves to the leaders in Jerusalem. And this wasn't like Old Testament saints long gone. This was like Uncle Bob. Like, we know he died, and here he is alive again because Jesus died and was resurrected. Like, there was no excuse for rejecting what happened with Jesus. Not only did they see all of this stuff to the point that a Roman centurion could look at him and go, ah, yeah, this guy was the son of God. What on earth did we just do? Even someone with no background in all of this can recognize the significance of what happened. Still, the leaders rejected it all. Something we're going to talk about this morning. The problem is not knowledge. The problem is you. Joel expresses this reality that there's coming a day. There is coming a day where the Spirit of God will be on all kinds of people. It won't just be on the prophets. It won't just be on the kings. It won't just be on the judges. It will be what Moses wished for. I wish that not only the elders, I wish that all the people had the Spirit of God. And here, Five, six hundred years after Moses' wish, Joel says that indeed is the intention. There's coming a day when that will be. After all of these things. And he tells it to a, to, a, um, to a generation that will never see it. A generation that will never hear of it. And a generation that will never witness it. These things they anticipated, as First Peter puts it, but never actually saw. These things were written for our sake so that we can see them in retrospect that this was not just some second plan that God had in saving the world through Christ. No, this is what he had planned since the beginning of the world. This is what he intended. This is what he will do. And as far as the role of the Spirit of God is, this is not going to be something relegated only to Moses or to the elders or to the judges or to the kings or now, as we've entered the time of the prophets, to the prophets. No, it will even be taken away, the Spirit of God, from the prophets. Do you know that? It's the reason why there's a 450-year gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. God just stopped speaking at all. Jewish people wrote about this after the close of Malachi, that Malachi was the last prophet that the Spirit spoke through, and today there is nobody. It's like, what, what are we supposed to do? The Lord's not even speaking to us anymore. Our temple doesn't work anymore. There's invaders coming in. We're taken over by Persia. We're taken over by Greece. We're taken over by the Romans. And God's not speaking to us. And so what did they do? They founded synagogues, which you'll recognize are not in the Old Testament. 
but they are in the New Testament, so that they could sit there and just study the word of the Lord because that is where the Spirit of the Lord speaks. The church takes on the exact same role. Is God speaking today with new revelation everywhere? No. No, he's not. He spoke. He delivered his gospel once and for all in the person of Jesus Christ and his direct apostles. After this, what do we spend our time mulling over and thinking over and studying and believing and trusting? It is what he has said. Because that's really what Moses was interested in. Moses, what is it that the Lord said? He didn't go up on the mountain and write the law. No, this is what the finger of God wrote. Same for the elders. This is what the Spirit of the Lord speaks. The same thing for the judges. This is what the Lord has me doing. The same thing for the kings, especially for David. This is what the Lord speaks through my mouth for some reason unbeknownst to me. Same thing for the prophets. I can't say other than what the Lord has said to me. We see it with Balaam. Remember? He tries, he's hired to speak uh, curses upon Israel. And when he opens his mouth, the Lord changes the sound of the words on the way out of the mouth so that they're blessings instead. And he's not able to actually pronounce cursings. Remarkable story. Um, God changes sound in not just his mouth, but also in his donkey's mouth. Uh, Really cool stuff going on there. Unfortunately, the Spirit's not explicitly mentioned there, but absolutely part of that story uh, in the inherent study. But in all of these things, Joel is now starting to look forward to this time when, when God will work through all the people. It doesn't require a king now to just be faithful to the Lord. It requires all of us to be faithful to the Lord. This is, I mean, it's overwhelming because God has never interacted with people on this level. And it's not going to be through one nation. It's not going to be through uh, one group of people that's the leaders. No, no. It's going to be to all people, even down to the lowliest servant, all the way to the highest court. Every single person has to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Great equalizer. Remarkable thing that God is no respecter of persons. It will not be that he's going to come and say, oh, you just need like 40% salvation uh, due to your station, due to your righteousness. And you over here, you're really bad. You need like 85% salvation, uh, like maybe even 90% because of all these bad things you did in your youth that you've left go, this and that. No, he comes to all of us and through the mouths of the prophet says, even our righteousness is as filthy rags. We all need 100% salvation. No amount of strength. In fact, as we will go through the story of the prophets and even in the New Testament, we'll find that those who see themselves as righteous very rarely ever come to salvation. They don't see their need for a savior. It's like someone who has no symptoms. Why am I going to go to a doctor? Right? Everything's fine. Jesus uses that exact picture. He says, I'm the great physician. Those who are well don't need me. You think you're fine. You continue. But if you know yourself to be sick and that sin is going to destroy you and that you will be judged at the end of eternity for this because you have believed what the Lord has said about these things, I heal the sick. I save the ungodly. And it is through the power of the Spirit of God that he does these things. It is simply an overwhelming reality of how God has always dealt with his people. What was the great sin of Moses at the end of his life when they were about to enter into the promised land and he was barred from it? Everyone thinks it was because he split the rock. Nope. No. God says, why? He says, I cannot have you lead this people into the promised land because you did not uphold me as holy. You did not uphold me as holy. Yeah, that was for the um, for the building of the temple, right? For Moses, it was because he stood up while he was cracking that rock open, and it was because of what he said. What he said was, I'll paraphrase: Do me and God have to just keep on correcting all of you sinners? You see that attitude? He put himself right next to God. We always have to fix you guys, and God says. You just crossed the barrier between creature and creator. 
That is violating my holiness, and you did it in front of the entire nation. I am not going to use you anymore. You will now die. And I will choose Joshua. Why? Because he's not going to do that. Now, the first instance of Joshua is when the, when the, the commander of the Lord's host comes, and Joshua's like, uh, are you for us or for our enemies? <laughs> like, what side are you on? And what is the answer of the Lord's host? The commander of the Lord's host. By the way, pre-incarnate Jesus. Just point that out. What's his response? Neither. I'm not for you, and I'm not for your enemies. It's not if I'm on your side, are you on mine? That holiness is a part of all of the stories that we'll go through in the prophets. Um, oh, we've got 10 minutes left. Let's go back to Second Chronicles 24. Joash comes to the throne at the ripe old age of seven, uh, you know, he leaves second grade, you know, elementary school and, and becomes the king of, uh, of Judah. That becomes really difficult. Um, he reigns for 40 years in Jerusalem. Remarkable. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, he had a remarkable priest named Jehoiada, an awesome character study, if anyone's ever interested. <clears throat> Jehoiada, uh, at a time when people don't live this long, lives to the ripe old age of 130 uh, very unusual in the 800s for someone to live that long. Uh, so we're dealing with someone really unique. Uh, but the story is not about Jehoiada. The story is actually about his son after Jehoiada dies. All the days that Jehoiada was priest, Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord from 7 to, you know, early 40s. <clears throat> Verse 17, 2 Chronicles 24 is where we'll pick this short story up. Now after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king, and the king listened to them. And the princes abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the ashram and the idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Yet he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. There is the purpose of the prophets, by the way, to bring people back to the Lord. It's not to give them clues about the future, it's to call them to repentance. Every prophet was sent for this purpose. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. That, that, is the, that is the quintessential struggle between the prophets and the kings, constantly. The prophets are sent by the Lord to, to call everyone to repentance and faithfulness. And then these evil kings will respond with, no, or we'll just ignore you. Or we'll hire our own prophets that speak to us smooth words that we really want to hear, rather than what the Lord has said, which makes us look bad. Verse 20, then the spirit, of the, the spirit of God, interesting phrasing, clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. He stood up above the people and said to them, thus says God. By the way, nobody but a prophet can actually say that. That's, that's the prophet's role. This isn't, this isn't Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest going, you know what? I was thinking the other day. Um, you guys need to be faithful and nice. He didn't ask for this role. He didn't seek it. In fact, we see this in multiple priests and prophets throughout this time period is they don't want the role that God is giving them. And by the way, this is not um, Zechariah, the, the, the one who wrote the book of Zechariah. That's later on in history. The son of Jehoiada the priest, he stood above the people. Thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you can't prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. That's the end of his message. How, how do you think that's going to be taken, do you think? Do you think they're going to be like, you know what, you're right. Uh, sorry, um, we repent, we'll tear down the poles, we'll tear down the altars and the high places, and we'll return to the temple of the Lord. Nope, they conspired against him. And by the commandment of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court and the house of the Lord right there in front of the temple. Then Joash the king did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him, but killed his son. And as he was dying, he says, may the Lord see and avenge. A lot of people will look at that and go like, you know, doesn't it say, you know, don't take vengeance and all this kind of stuff, and we always just seek to be nice? No, 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 that's not what it says. It says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
leave it. This even is from the lips of Jesus himself. Leave it to the vengeance of God. Don't seek to get your own vengeance. It's one of those great things, I think, in the New Testament that is constantly overlooked. The church is not given the sword. We are not given the right to take revenge on people. It is not to say that vengeance should never be carried out. No, it is to say we depend on the Lord for vengeance to be enacted in the ultimate. You know, if somebody comes up and slaps me on the cheek, I don't give them the other cheek just because I like being hit or I don't think they deserve to be slapped right back. They do. I would just rather that one who knows how to wield vengeance is going to do it rather than me. If I start wielding vengeance, what does it do? It carries me away into all manner of hell. I don't want that. The same thing for the church. The church was never given the sword. The sword, the right of capital punishment, was given to the governments. When the church takes it and we do crusades, what happens? It carries us away into things that aren't the gospel and aren't Christian and aren't the church. Right? We aren't given that. And so for us to wield something like that is too much for us. The wrath of man... James chapter 1 warns us on the exact same thing, does not produce the righteousness of God. Wrath is too huge of a weapon for us to wield without it destroying us while we use it righteously. And so when it comes to vengeance, it's not that we don't want vengeance for injustices due to us, it's that we trust that the Lord is the ultimate avenger and we will leave it to him. Here, This is exactly what Zechariah says as his final words. This is a great injustice. May the Lord see, may the Lord avenge. But what had he called him to? He hadn't called him to anything that was destructive. He hadn't called him to anything that was bizarre. This is normal stuff for a prophet to call people to. What does he say? Why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you can't prosper? The Lord's going to ensure that you are punished long-term. Even if breaking the commandments of the Lord leads to short-term gains, there is a truth about the way that God built this world, which is if you are going to think that you're going to find prosperity by getting away with sin, you won't. The world is not constructed in a way that sin will lead to ultimate success. It won't. It will eventually crumble. It may take one generation or two or five. It doesn't matter even if you live to see the outcomes. It is the certain pattern of this world that to do things on the basis of immorality or the breaking of the commandments of God simply because it's expedient or because it leads to certain outcomes, even if that works for you, you don't know the contingencies down the road of what your example does, what it encourages others to do, or what you have failed to do simply because you thought sin, you could get away with it. This is exactly what Zechariah is telling them. He says, look, you're not going to prosper in breaking the commandments of the Lord. That's not how this world works. Even even when we go to our own culture, why is it that the current way of things is not going to lead very well? Well, because none of this is about how the Lord has actually made this world work. It's about us pursuing money, fame, and notoriety and power at all costs. That's not going to work out well. Every single massive civilization has crumbled under its own weight pursuing those exact things. Dozens of times throughout history. Notice when I said that the people of God went from captivity to Assyria, or excuse me, from Babylon to Assyria, to Persia, to Greece, to Rome. These are massive powers that just kept switching every two, three hundred years. That's just how the history of the world works. Something gets huge, But sin destroys it. It just does. And sin was present all along. And it just takes time to ramify. And here, this is exactly what the prophet is saying to them. Why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you can't prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. The alternate is true as well, friends. Doing what is right is worth it even if you don't see the outcomes. I am well aware that my actions and your actions have ramifications that will live well past our deaths. We can't see them. We can't see 300 years down the road the butterfly effect of faithfulness. I'm telling you guys, I wouldn't have become a Christian if something hadn't happened at some point. Now, I'm just speaking on a human level, right? Obviously, God sees to these things. 
But the effect of small moments, we can't extrapolate for the good or for the evil. And so when we see that short-term gains are made by lying or by, by defrauding people or something, in the end, it will out that we have massive problems. But the same things with good. We don't always see the ramifications of what we do. If we do something good, it might lead to suffering. This is what Jesus says. If you follow me, you might lose your family and even your own life. I mean, you've got to consider if it's worth it because it will take millennia for this to pay off. Is it worth it? And, and Jesus makes that really, really clear to the people who are saying that they had what it take to follow him. It's Luke chapter 18, if you're curious. Um, and, and he lays out for them, he's like, you got to figure out if you have what it takes. Because the reality is there may come a time where the cost to follow me is just too much. It's too much deferring. It's too much giving vengeance to the Lord. And sometimes you just want to take a bat and smash someone's face in for wronging you in such a way. But what does God say about these things? Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Depend on me. You will prosper. Does that mean you'll have lots of money? No. Many, many faithful Christians have died poor and in famines. What have they done? They've committed their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the groundwork of how the gospel will actually work physically in our lives. And it's kind of remarkable because the reality is that this is written 800 years before Christ is born. And it's laying that groundwork to expect there is a day when God will actually interact with his people on this basis individually, regardless of if they're slaves or kings. And wouldn't you know it, when the time of the church age comes, that's exactly what happens. He comes and interacts with us on the same basis that he interacted with his prophets. Here is what the word of the Lord says. You say, well, God doesn't interact with me with that. What do you have sitting in front of you? You live in a time where you have more access to what the word of the Lord says than any other generation in history. Period. It's not even close. 200 years ago, high scholars didn't have access to what every single person here in this room has access to right now. The question is not, do we have enough information? The question is, are we faithful to what God has told us? Are we faithful to what he has said? No matter the effect or ramifications no matter the sufferings that come in your life, if you are not focused on the Lord, the first thing you're going to do when suffering comes your way is to look at that suffering and say, this is the Lord punishing me. But if your focus is on the Lord, you say, I don't know why this is in my path, but I'm thankful that God is here with me. You see the difference? It doesn't make suffering go away. Not by following the Lord do you then insulate yourself from suffering. No, that, that happens, Right? It doesn't, it doesn't then follow that all suffering is because of disobedience. It doesn't work like that. It's not that quick, nor is it that all obedience leads to instant success. It doesn't work like that. It takes time. It takes investment. It's kind of like all those get-rich-quick schemes. So, well, if investing makes me rich, here's $1,000. Boy, it sounds just like these uh, prosperity preachers, doesn't it? You know, here's $1,000. I'm going to invest it in a stock, and tomorrow I'm supposed to have a million, right? No, it takes time. It's like growing a fruit tree takes time. It takes time, a lot of time. Uh, that focus is long-term. It is not short-term gains. Short-term gains are dangerous because they have short-term losses that are just as significant and sometimes more so. Um, don't, don't look at suffering that enters your life and go, oh, therefore the Lord is against me. No. Christian, the Lord is always with you. Suffering or not, he's right there with you. Um, I get to face that in a real practical way this week. Um, it's not every week that you have to face a risk to your own daughter's life. Um, that's a hard thing to swallow as a dad. I don't look at that and say, this is all about me. It's not. All of life is about the Lord. and He is with us no matter where we go and no matter what happens. Um, not because we would prefer it that way, but because he's told us that. And he said that that is the basis on which he interacts with his people, no matter where they go, no matter what they do. L listen to the wisdom of David, right? We're just like, it didn't matter where I went. Make my bed in hell? 
find myself in the uttermost parts of the sea, all the way where the sun rises to where the sun sets. Didn't matter where I was, whether I was close to the temple or far from it, close to the church or far from it. There, the Lord is with me wheresoever I go. And that is, that is just a remarkable comfort that the Lord does not abandon the righteous, no matter their circumstances. Um, when we come back, we're going to find ourselves well-steeped into the prophets. Um, I will say, I'm, I'm not here for the next two Sundays. Um, so uh, I'm going to talk to Ralph about uh, if we're going to take opportunity for this class period for something else, or if we're going to just put this on hiatus um, just for two weeks um, and figure out what to do um, because of all that. But l- let's pray at the let's pray at the end of this, yeah. Our Father, we are indeed grateful that your word sits ever in our hearts, that your spirit has clasped our souls in his hands, and that all of these things, no matter where we go, no matter what we do, end at your throne, in your grace, in your presence forever. We pray, Father, not that we see all the successes that your gift of faith to us will work in our lives. It is enough for us to know that our names are recorded in heaven. And no matter what we have done, even in our faithfulness, we have only done what is our duty and gratitude to you alone because of the new hearts you've given us. Make us satisfied with Christ for we know you are satisfied with him. We thank you for all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen.